Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadee Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. This is our program where we come together to explore volumes 2 through 13 of this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment Revealing the Hidden. We're closing out this program for the remaining few weeks of going forward because on January 28th, we're going to be restarting from the very beginning. We're in book 13, which is titled Generosity. And today we're exploring chapters 51 through 60. So we only have a few more classes left and we'll actually be completely finished with this entire book, the entire book series, and the entire uh, run through of the Pali Canon and English Study Group using this set of books. I published these books back in June of 2021. So it's taken about a year and a half to actually go through all the individual books. And we're gonna be restarting that. And you can actually join the Pali Canon and English Study Group at any point that you like. But some people really like to join at the beginning of these programs, so you have that opportunity for you on January 28th, which is a Saturday towards the end of January. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today because the way that we do our classes, we start typically with a meditation, then we go into reading the individual chapters, and then after we read the chapters, then I'll share teachings around that chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. If you're participating in Facebook, YouTube, or in Zoom, you can ask questions by putting that into the comment section. In Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically. If you're watching this on any of the replays, you can also ask questions through putting those into Facebook. You can send a private message, and you can even schedule personal guidance. But if you ever make your way from the replays into the live classes, then you can actually ask questions live. And a lot of students will actually read these books beforehand, read the chapters before each class. So that way, when you come into class, you actually have certain questions that you might have, or you might decide to read them after the class, either before and or after the class would be wise because you have the words of the Buddha, you have the reference going back to the original source text, and then you have the explanations to help you further understand what's actually in the book and how to potentially reflect on what the Buddha is actually teaching. His words are very clear, very concise, and very precise. You'll have no issues understanding exactly what it is that he's teaching, but it really helps to have somebody with experience to guide you through, and that's what my explanations are helping you to do, is helping you to understand what it is that you can draw out of his words, but you're not relying on that solely. You're actually spending time to reflect on your own thoughts and what it is that you're understanding about these chapters as well. 
So I'd like to invite you to join for just a brief meditation just to prepare the mind. I'll do some chanting, then we'll do just a very brief meditation and then we'll come out with some chanting. And then we'll move into the remaining part of our class today where we'll be reading chapters 51 through 60 of this book, volume 13, titled Generosity. establishing the breath. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Focus on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose. No need to judge the thought, analyze it, or try to figure out where it's coming from. Instead, 
Just focus the mind on the breath. And wherever you notice that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out.
short little meditation just to kind of prepare the mind for our class today just doing a brief brief guidance just to kind of help a little bit but most of the people who are learning in this program already are doing meditation so you don't really need much guidance from me so what I'm going to do is just turn things over to all of you in order to open up for the actual class where there'll be somebody who reads a chapter then i'll share teachings around that chapter then open up to any questions that you guys might have you can put those into facebook youtube or zoom or you can raise your hand electronically in zoom and ask any questions that you like so i'll just go ahead and turn things over to all of you guys uh, yes thank you sir um would you be so good as to share the screen with the chapters sir sure there you go. Thank you. Um, I'll read chapter 51, uh, Recipient and the Fruit of Giving, First Discourse. Then, knowing that the perfectly enlightened one had consented, Sthachaka, the Niganta's son, 
addressed the Lichavans. Hear me, Lichavans. The ascetic Gautama, together with the community of good monks, has been invited by me for tomorrow's meal. You may bring to me whatever you think would be suitable for him. Then, when the night ended, the Lichavis brought five ceremonial dishes of milk rice as gifts of food. Then Sachaka, the Niganta's son, had good food of various kinds prepared in his own part and had the time announced to the perfectly enlightened one. It is time, Master Gotama, the meal is ready. Then, it being morning, the perfectly enlightened one dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, he went with the community of monks to the park of Sachaka the Niganta's son and sat down on the seat made ready. Then, with his own hands, Sachaka the Niganta's son served and satisfied the community of monks headed by the Buddha with the various kinds of good food. When the perfectly enlightened one had eaten and had put his bowl aside, Sachaka the Niganta's son took a low seat sat down at one side and said to the perfectly enlightened one, Master Gotama, may the merit and the great meritorious fruits of this act of giving be for the peacefulness of the givers. Agivesana, whatever comes about from giving to a recipient such as yourself, one who is not free from craving, not free from anger, not free from ignorance, unknowing of true reality, that will be for the givers. And whatever comes about from giving to a recipient such as myself, one who is free from craving, free from anger, free from ignorance, that will be for you. All right. So thank you, Miranda. This is a chapter where we're getting a quite a bit of story about what's actually transpiring before the Buddha actually starts to share teachings. Because this was very common during his lifetime that People would invite him to a certain place. They would feed him, take care of him, give him the things that he needed to sustain his life. Then he would share whatever teachings that were needed and that people asked questions about. So here, right away, you know, after he's done eating, there's this discussion about merit, essentially, is this production of merit and who actually is going to receive that merit. And here the Buddha is saying anybody who makes an offering to someone who's not free of craving anger and ignorance, in other words, someone who's not enlightened, if they're making an offering to that person, then those people are getting that merit. They're getting the benefit of that offering. And then people who are making benefit to the Buddha, they're getting the benefit of making the offering to the Buddha. So in this story, what transpired is people in the countryside basically gave food to this one individual, and then that one individual then offered food to the Buddha. So the people who gave the food to this one individual that ultimately got handed over to the Buddha, they received a certain amount of benefit of eliminating craving, desire, attachment through making this offering. But what they didn't get is they didn't get to be in the company of the Buddha and actually make the offering to him directly and then receive any teachings that he was to share. So this is what the Buddha is explaining here is this two aspects of giving is that, yes, and we've seen in other chapters where he talks about anybody who participates in any aspect of the giving is going to produce benefit and is going to produce merit. 
But I've also shared with you that one of the significant benefits that an individual receives through making an offering, particularly to someone who is either enlightened or close to enlightenment, and surely in making an offering to an actual Buddha, this means that you're coming in close contact with an actual Buddha or an enlightened being or someone who's very close to them, to enlightenment. So what you're receiving for that is, yes, you're receiving the benefit of eliminating craving, desire, attachment, and cultivating wisdom. But what you're also receiving is that production of merit where you're now able to see the continuation of these teachings. You're able to cultivate the wisdom and your contribution to a Buddha or someone that is enlightened or close to enlightenment is going towards the continuation of these teachings. It's helping you because you're helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. It's helping those people who choose to continue to learn with those individuals. And it's also helping to cultivate wisdom for you and people in the community. But the direct recipient of that is going to be the person who is in the company of the individuals that are sharing the teachings. Here, the people who didn't actually come to see the Buddha, they're not actually getting the benefit of cultivating that wisdom. And that's what he's talking about here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay. Would you like me to read the even numbers, Miranda? Uh, Yes, please, sir. Thank you. Okay. So chapter 52, it's titled Recipient in the Fruit of Giving, Second Discourse. Monks, when it is new, cloth made of bark fabric is ugly, uncomfortable, and of little value. When it has been worn, Cloth made of bark fabric is ugly, uncomfortable, and of little value. When it is old, cloth made of bark fabric is still ugly, uncomfortable, and of little value. They use old cloth made of bark fabric for cleaning pots, or they discard it on a rubbish heap. So too, monks, if a junior monk is immoral, of unwholesome character, this... I say, counts as his ugliness. Just as cloth made of bark fabric is ugly, so I say, this person is similar. For those who associate with him, resort to him, attend on him, and follow his example, this leads to their harm and discontentedness for a long time. This, I say, counts as his uncomfortableness. Just as cloth made of bark fabric is uncomfortable, so I say this person is similar. When he accepts a robe, alms food, lodging, and medicines, and provisions for the sick, this acceptance is not of great fruit and benefit for those who offer such things. This, I say, counts as his being of little value. Just as cloth made of bark fabric is of little value, so I say this person is similar. If a monk of middle standing is immoral, of unwholesome character, this, I say, counts as his ugliness. Just as cloth made of bark fabric is ugly, so I say this person is similar. So the Buddha is going to go through here and share the same exact teachings for a Uh, junior ordained practitioner, which we might call a novice, 
a middle standing uh, person who has been ordained for a period of years, maybe two, three, four years. And then he also goes into the same teaching for an elder monk, someone who's been ordained for maybe 10, 20 years, 30 years. And he's saying here, as we go through the discourse, it's the same exact teachings as with the junior monk, that there's this immorality, this unwholesome character, this um, people who attend to this person or associate with them, or they follow their example. This is for their own harm, their own discontentedness, uh, their own uncomfortableness. And now when he gets down to the bottom here, he says, if such an elder monk speaks in the midst of the community, the monks say to him, what gives you, an unwise person, the right to speak? Do you think you too are entitled to speak? He then becomes angry and displeased and utters speech on account of which the community expels him as if discarding the cloth made of bark fabric on the trash heap. So here, if this elder monk is becoming angry and displeased, we know that they're not enlightened. And also, as the Buddha is explaining here, a monk or anyone who is immoral or unwholesome character, we know that there's not the enlightened mind there as well. So what the Buddha is essentially explaining here as he goes through this is he's explaining somebody who makes an offering to an individual, even as an ordained individual, who is immoral, who has unwholesome character, who is, you know, essentially doing these things that are that are not prescribed in the guidance on the path to enlightenment, even when a person makes an offering to that person, it's a very little benefit to you. You're still getting the benefit of eliminating craving, desire, attachment, because you're making an offering, but you're not making an offering to a virtuous practitioner. The Buddha always describes this when he talks about making an offering to a teacher or a dean practitioner. He always prefaces it with virtuous. Virtuous would be someone who is moral, who is practicing wholesome uh, conduct, and who's sharing the teachings perhaps. If they are ordained or if they're a teacher, they should be sharing the teachings through what they've learned and what they've cultivated as wisdom and what they're practicing. There's this mutual support between the students and household practitioners and the teachers who are sharing the teachings. If an individual is accepting alms food or is accepting robes or lodging or medicines, today we accept uh, financial support as well. If this is what's coming into an individual, they should be offering back teachings as a way to help those individuals who are making offerings. It's not required for a student to make an offering. It's not required for a teacher to share teachings, but this is the choice that individuals are making. Students are learning that generosity leads to enlightenment, that producing merit leads to enlightenment. This is what a student needs to practice in order to train the mind to eliminate selfishness. But then with those offerings, a teacher should be getting deeper and deeper and deeper into their practice because they're not having to go outside to work every day. They're not having to go outside to, you know, labor and labor and labor. They're essentially focused on 
reading the discourses and meditating and reflecting on the teachings and practicing the teachings, setting up classes and doing all the things that are needed in order to share these teachings back with their students. And if somebody, whether they're a novice, whether they're someone who's been ordained for kind of a middle period of time or someone who's been ordained or is teaching for a really long extended time, if they're immoral or they have unwholesome character, the Buddha is saying that this isn't beneficial because if you're supporting that through your offerings, then you're supporting that individual. You're supporting the immorality. You're supporting the unwholesome character. And this is setting a bad example for the teachings to then be learned and understood by students. But on the contrary, what you'll have seen in this book and what you'll see more of is that when you support virtuous ordained practitioners or virtuous teachers, then you're supporting these good, wholesome teachings to come into the world with somebody who's practicing a strong moral conduct and has wholesome character. Because not only does a teacher teach through their words and their books and classes and videos and podcasts and Uh, private guidance and all the other ways that a a teacher might teach, but they're also teaching through setting an example of the teachings. So if somebody is teaching right speech, but they're practicing wrong speech, this makes it very challenging for a student to be able to understand what is right speech. Or if they're teaching right action, but they're practicing wrong action, this makes it very challenging for a student to understand what are the teachings here. If they're teaching the five precepts, but yet they're not practicing them, then this isn't setting a very good example for the students of how to actually practice these. But on the contrary, if somebody is teaching the five precepts and they're practicing those, they are teaching right speech, right action, and other teachings, and they are practicing those, then not only are the students learning through the words and all the books and all the things that a teacher might be sharing, but they're also learning through that teacher's actions and the way that they conduct themselves in the world. And this actually has a much bigger impact to the students understanding how to practice these teachings through setting a good example and being a good role model. We saw in previous chapters where the Buddha was talking about, you know, when the unwholesome monks are strong, the wholesome monks are weak. And he also talks about when the wholesome monks are strong, the unwholesome monks are weak. So when the wholesome community comes together and we're practicing the teachings very strong and very vibrantly within our families, within our workplace, within our community, then people can see very clearly what the true teachings are. And then they can perhaps aspire to understand them and then practice them themselves. Even if they don't open up a book and learn from a book, they can observe how you practice right speech with your children or with your coworkers or your friends. And they might appreciate something that they're hearing. They're like, hey, I really like that. I think I'm going to model that same conduct for myself. So by the wholesome community practicing very, very well, or what the Buddha described as the upright community or the straight community, if we practice really well, then more and more individuals can observe what that practice looks like. And then the community of enlightened beings can just continue to grow and flourish. And then if offerings are made into that community, then that community will just continue to grow and flourish because they have the food, the clothing, the water, the shelter, the medical care, and nowadays financial support to be able to continue to share those teachings far and wide with whomever has a sincere interest to learn them and practice them. 
What questions do you guys have on this chapter? There are no questions at this time, sir. Okay, so we'll go to chapter 53. Yes, sir. Uh, factors leading to a great mass of merit. Uh, monks, the female household practitioner, Elu Kantaki Nandamata, is preparing an offering possessed of six factors for the community of monks, headed by Sarikuda and Mogalan. And how is an offering possessed of six factors? Here, the donor has three factors, and the recipients have three factors. What are the three factors of the donor? One, the donor is joyful before giving. Two, she has a calm, confident mind in the act of giving. And three, she is joyful after giving. These are the three factors of the donor. What are the three factors of the recipients? Here, four, the recipients are free of craving or are practicing to remove craving. Five, they are free of anger or are practicing to remove anger. Six, they are free of ignorance or are practicing to remove ignorance. These are the three factors of the recipients. Thus, the donor has three factors and the recipients have three factors. In such a way, the offering possesses six factors. It is not easy to measure the merit of such an offering thus. Just so much is the stream of merit, stream, stream of the wholesome, nutriment of peacefulness, heavenly, ripening in peacefulness, conducive to heaven, that leads to what is a supplier for, needed and agreeable, to one's welfare and peacefulness. Rather, it is considered simply as an incalculable, immeasurable, great mass of merit. Monks, just as it is not easy to measure the water in the great ocean thus, there are so many gallons of water, or there are so many hundreds of gallons of water, or there are so many thousands of gallons of water, or there are so many hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. But rather, it is considered simply as an incalculable, immeasurable, great mass of water. Prior to giving, one is joyful. While giving, one settles the mind in trust. After giving, one is joyful. This is the success in the act of an offering. When they are free of craving and anger, free of ignorance, without taints or fetters, mentally disciplined, living the spiritual life, the field for the offering is complete. Having cleansed oneself and given with one's own hands, the act of charity is very fruitful for oneself and in relation to others. Having performed such a charitable deed with a mind free from selfishness, the wise person, rich in confidence, is reborn in a happy, non-afflictive world. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, the Buddha is talking to a female household practitioner. So when he's discussing this teaching, he's using the pronoun she, but we can apply any pronoun that exists today or any in the future, referring to essentially a human being or any kind of being that's making a, an offering. So here, he's talking about six factors that would be essentially purifying this offering. And here, if you're making a donation, if you're the donor, he's saying the mind should be joyful before giving, it should be calm and confident while in the act of giving. And then afterwards, the mind should still be joyful. 
Essentially, what he's describing here is ensuring that you don't have remorse when you're actually giving an offering. Sometimes at the end of an offering, you might feel like, oh, I didn't give enough. I should have gave more. Then maybe the mind didn't spend time ahead of time thinking through your offering. And now afterwards, there's this remorse that maybe I should have given more. But then you can also get to the end of an offering and feel like, oh, I gave too much. I shouldn't have given that so much. I'm not going to have food or money for myself or my family. So this is the remorse that can sometimes be experienced through making an offering. But if you put your thoughts together about what type of offering you would like to make and the quantity of the offering that you would like to make, now you can be joyful before you ever give that you've put some thought into the offering and you know with 100% certainty, like, yes, I can share this offering and it's not going to cause harm to me. It's not going to cause harm to anyone else. I'm freely able to give this to somebody else and let them to use it and for the benefit of the community to continue to share these teachings. So there can be this joy before actually giving in the mind, not because of making the offering, that would be a conditioned feeling, but just the joy can be maintained in the mind. Because what joy is, is it's this delight or this quality of mind, this unconditioned gladness, where the joy is not based on any condition. Instead, it's just there that the mind can reside continuously joyful, not based on the condition of making an offering or the quantity of offering, but it can just be joyful regardless of what the offering is. So now the mind can maintain that unconditioned joy. And then while giving, instead of you know feeling like this person is so high above you and oh my goodness, I've got to make this offering to this person and they're so high above me, or I'm so high above this person, you know, they're so poor, let me give them something, you know, they're they're such a low person, they need this offering or or what have you. Instead, the mind can be calm and confident while making this offering that you don't have to put yourself above or below others. There's not this anxiety or fear that comes into the mind. And then after the offering, the mind can still be joyful. And if you've practiced this type of giving where you've experienced joy before giving, you've been calm and confident in the act of giving, and there was joy afterwards, then this is the middle way. This is where the mind can maintain its stability and its steadiness. Whereas if you're not experiencing that, then there's something off in the way that you're making your offering and the way that you're preparing your offering, and you would like to look at that more closely. Then the Buddha gives some guidance on the type of individual to make an offering to. Here he shares in a different way than he normally shares. He usually shares making offerings to virtuous ordained practitioners or virtuous teachers. That is someone who's practicing good, wholesome moral conduct. Well, in order to practice good, wholesome moral conduct, they need to be working on the elimination of craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality. These are the three unwholesome roots, or the three fires, the three poisons. And here he's saying someone who's either free of craving, anger, and ignorance, which means they're actually enlightened if somebody's completely free of that. And then the other option is somebody who's practicing to remove craving or practicing to remove anger or practicing to remove ignorance. So if you know that somebody's constantly learning with their teacher, even though they're teaching, they might be constantly learning with their teacher. They might be 
reading the sutras, they might be learning the discourses, they might be working on eliminating craving through practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity themselves. They're working to eliminate anger. You very rarely see them angry or that when they are angry, they know that and they cut it off right away. These are all indications that somebody's working to remove craving, anger, and ignorance. But if you saw somebody who is sharing these teachings and they're willingly smoking cigarettes, they're hitting animals, they're you know aggressive and hostile and bitter to their students or other people around them. This isn't someone who's actively working to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance, and it would be unwise to support that. So the Buddha is saying here to look for somebody who's free of craving, anger, and ignorance, which means they're enlightened. You wouldn't see any discontentedness whatsoever or they're working to remove craving, anger, and ignorance. And the Buddha shares in other parts of his teachings some kind of shortcut ways of, of trying to discern this for yourself because sometimes it can be somewhat of a challenge for someone who hasn't studied these teachings deeply to be able to discern whether somebody is enlightened or if they're working to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance. Uh, there's some, I think, we've already discussed in this uh, series, in this actual book, where he's kind of sharing some shorthand ways of uh, looking at that, where he talks about if someone's conceited or puffed up or boastful, or they're really talkative, they're not focused, they don't have concentration, their mind is muddled. He talks about some of these you know, kind of basic ways, because if somebody has craving, anger, and ignorance, and their mind is polluted with those things, you'll see that the mind is muddled, you'll see that they lack concentration, that they might have conceits where they're boastful, you can see that they're very talkative, having idle chatter, they're not very focused in what they're talking about because there's craving permeating in the mind. So this can hinder somebody from having focus and uh, they can have idle chatter or frivolous speech. So this is part of what the Buddha is describing here and he's talking about having all six of these factors, three from the donor and three from the recipient, the amount of benefit that is experienced because of this is basically incalculable, unmeasurable, immeasurable. It's a great mass of merit. And then he kind of summarizes it down here towards the bottom. What questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? Yes, sir. On YouTube, Tonka asks, my daughter offered to drive me to a place, and while I am grateful, at the same time I don't want to complicate her day, would it be wise to just accept the offer or to say I could bus as well? Yes, yeah, so the wise thing to do is if somebody is making you an offering and they're offering to practice generosity, the wise thing to do would be to accept it. There are certain situations where you're not going to accept it, right? Like if you know, somebody offered you cocaine or heroin or something like that, you're not going to accept that. Or if you know for yourself that you're not going to go to that place, if somebody's offering to take you to that place, you're like, oh, I'm not going to that place, then you wouldn't accept that offering. But if you're declining an offering because somebody you think it's going to burden somebody else, you're trying to get inside that person's mind and you're not able to do that. You need to accept 
face value that if somebody's making an offering, they've already made the decision in their mind that this is something that they would like to offer. If you second guess that and you say, oh, no, 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 I don't want you to take me because I don't want to burden you, but they already made the offer, right? This is something that I see in Western culture that the person tries to figure out what's going on in the other person's mind, assuming that this person doesn't really want to make you this offering. They're just doing it to be nice or kind. And therefore, we have to decline the offer. And that's the way to show politeness is to decline the offer. And there's other variations of this too. But what you would like to get to is that everybody's speaking the truth. Everybody's sharing what's truly going on in their mind. So if somebody makes an offering to take you, like your daughter offers to take you somewhere and you're going in that direction, there's no harm in you accepting that. Because if you decline that and you decline it regularly, then you're gonna get to the point where people never offer you anything because every time you they make an offering to you, you decline it and decline it and decline it. And people won't actually offer to help you with anything anymore. So it's helpful for you to actually accept uh, an offering. And this allows that person to practice generosity and it allows you to learn to accept it and understand that you don't need to get into the mind of somebody else and figure out whether they're truly making you an offering and that's something that they're able to do or are they just doing that just to be kind you need to not have your own perceptions and cling to your own perceptions your perception is you know a belief or opinion of the way things seem to be so if you're thinking that this is you know impactful for your daughter and is out of the way for your daughter you're clinging to your perception there because she's already made the offering and now by you saying, oh, I don't want to burden you because, you know, this will take you out of your way. That's you clinging to some perception that it is a burden to her when she's already made the offering and said, yes, I would like to take you. I would like to offer you this. So the only times you shouldn't accept an offering, in my opinion, is that, of course, if it's completely opposite of the teachings like you know, would you like me to go kill somebody for you? Would you like me to give you cocaine or heroin or, you know, these kinds of things? Or in a situation where, you know, you just, like your example, if you're not going to the place they're going to and they offer to take you to that place, well, of course, you're not going there. So why would you accept that offer? So those kind of things can be looked at closely. But otherwise, if it's something that somebody's giving you, like say they're giving you a sweater or a blanket and you don't need that blanket, you can still accept that blanket and then you find somebody to give it to. So now there's two people practicing generosity, the original donor, and then you, by handing it off to somebody else, you're practicing generosity too. And I see this sometimes in Thailand, there's three, four, five, six, eight, ten 10 people that are practicing generosity until that item finds an actual home where somebody can actually use it. Where what we tend to do when we have clinging and we have craving is we get something as a gift and then we're not gonna use it, but we feel like we have to hold on to it. So it sits in the closet and rots for 20 years or 30 years and nobody ever gets the benefit of using it. This is unwise, it's a, it's a waste of our resources. And we actually look at this as a negative thing if we actually give it to somebody else, we call it re-gifting. But if somebody has expectations that you're going to hold on to their gift and keep their gift and they get hurt by you 
handing off the gift to somebody else and practicing generosity, then what's causing their painful feelings is their craving, desire, attachment, not you. They didn't offer that gift in, with pure generosity. They had certain cravings and certain expectations, certain wants. They expected you to keep that gift. So they haven't made a generous offering and any kind of painful feelings that they're experiencing is because of their own craving, desire, attachment. The Buddha is going to talk about that in a chapter that we're going to discuss today where he talks about giving with expectations. And this isn't pure generosity. And that's the reason why that person is experiencing the painful feelings by you choosing to offer that to somebody else. Not that you could offer this ride to somebody else, but just expanding on this for you. But if you choose to make this offering to somebody else and somebody gets hurt because you've given away their blanket or the sweater, well, it's not their blanket. It's not their sweater. It was given to you and it should be no strings attached. You've made that generous offering to me and now I can do with it as I please. So sometimes we hold on to something and cling to it because we think the other person's going to get hurt if we don't hold on to it. But this is just clinging and craving and it really complicates things and the world becomes very wasteful because we have sweaters and blankets and shoes and things like this just wasting away in our closet when somebody could have actually benefited from it and used it. And there could have been three, four, five, six people experiencing generosity as this item gets offered to multiple people along the line. There's lots of benefit. Here the Buddha is talking about this immeasurable and incalculable benefit of just one person making an offering to another. But if that goes from person to person to person to person to person, you know, six, eight, ten times, wow, think about the immeasurable and incalculable amount of benefit of all those people having practiced generosity. Yes, sir. Those are all questions that we have at this time, sir. Okay. So let's go to the next one, which is chapter 54. This is titled The Four Purifications of Offerings. Monks, there are these four purifications of offerings. What for? There is an offering that is purified through the donor, but not through the recipients. Two, there is an offering that is purified through the recipients, but not through the donor. Three, there is an offering that is not purified by neither the donor nor the recipients. Four, there is an offering that is purified through both the donor and the recipients. One, and how monks is an offering purified through the donor, but not through the recipients. Here, the donor is virtuous, practicing moral conduct, and of wholesome character, but the recipients are immoral and of unwholesome character. It is in this way that an offering is purified through the donor, but not through the recipients. Two, and how is an offering purified from the recipients, but not through the donor? Here, the donor is immoral and of unwholesome character, but the recipients are virtuous, practicing moral conduct, and of wholesome character. It is in this way that an offering is purified through the recipients, but not through the donor. Three, and how is an offering not purified by neither the donor nor the recipients? Here, the donor is immoral and of unwholesome character, and the recipients, too, 
are immoral and of unwholesome character. It is in this way that an offering is not purified through neither the donor nor the recipients. 4. And how is an offering purified through both the donor and the recipients? Here, the donor is virtuous, practicing moral conduct, and of wholesome character, and the recipients too are virtuous and of wholesome character. It is in this way that an offering is purified through both the donor and the recipients. These are the four purifications of offerings. So here, the Buddha is explaining these four aspects of purification of offerings. Here, if a donor is practicing good, wholesome moral conduct, and the recipient is not, then we can see that, yes, that's wonderful that the donor is practicing, but the recipient is not. There's only a certain amount of purification there. The second one is, okay, the donor is not really practicing the teachings, but the recipient is. Okay, there's some purification there. And then the offering of not purified by neither the donor nor the recipient. Neither one of these people are actually practicing the teachings of good, wholesome moral conduct or wholesome character. And then the Buddha is talking here about where both the donor and the recipient are both practicing uh, the moral conduct and wholesome character as well. This is what the ideal situation would be, but there's also these other variations as well. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, There are no questions at this time, sir. Okay, so we'll go on to the next one, which is 55. Uh, Yes, sir. And then Bonya has um, offered to read chapter 55 for us. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, Chapter uh, 55, why is one give not of Great food and benefit why the other is. Uh, venerable sir, why is it that one gift is not of great food and benefit why the other is? Here, Saliputta, someone give a gift with expectation with a bow mind, looking for rewards. He give a gift, thinking, having passed away. I will make use of this. He give that gift to an ascetic or a Brahmin. Food and drink, clothing and vehicle, garland, scent and ointment, bedding, dwelling and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship, companionship with the heavenly being, ruled by the four king. Uh, sorry, ruled by the four great kings, having exalted that karma, psychic potency, glory, and authority. He come back and return to the state of being. But Sariputta, someone that does give a gift with expectation, with a bow mind, looking for reward. He does not give a gift, thinking, 
having passed away, I will make use of this letter. He can forgive. Giving is good. He gives that gift to an ascetic or a Brahmin. Food and drink, clothing and vehicle, garland, scent, and the ointment, bedding, dwelling, and lighting. Having given such a gift with the backup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the Tawatimsa, heavenly being, having exalted that karma, psychic potency, glory, and authority. He come back and return to this state of being. He does not give a gift in thinking. Giving is good, but later he give a gift. Thinking, giving was practiced before by my father and forefathers. I should not abandon this ancient family custom. He give that gift to an ascetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicle, garland, sin, and the ointment, bedding, dwelling, and lighting. Having given such a gift with the backup of the body, after that, he is born in companionship with the Yama, heavenly being, having exalted karma, psychic potency, glory, and authority. He come back and return to this state of being. He does not give a gift. Giving was practiced before by my father and forefather. I should not abandon this ancient family custom, but rather he give a gift. I cook. These people do not cook. Is it right that I who cook should not give to those who do not cook? He give that gift to the ascetic or a Brahmin. Food and drink, food and vehicle, garland, sin, and ointment, bedding, dwelling, and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body, after that, he is reborn in the companionship with the Tusita. Heavenly being, having exalted with karma, psychic potency, glory, authority. He come back and return to this state of being. He does not give a gift, thinking, I cook, these people do not cook. It isn't right that I who cook should not give to those who do not cook, but rather he give a gift. Just as he see of the elders, that is Ataka, Vamaka, Vama heavenly being, Vesamita, Yamataki, Ankirasa, Bharat, Bharataja, Vasetha, Kasapa, and Bagu hold those great sacrifice. So I will share a gift. He gave that gift to an ancient or a Brahmin. Food and drink, cloth and vehicle, garland, scent and ointment, bedding, dwelling, and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body after death. He is reborn in a companionship with the heavenly being who delighted in creation, having thought that karma, psychic, potency, glory, and authority. He come back and return to this state of being. Give a gift, just as he see of the elders. 
that is Ataka, Wamaga, Wama heavily B, Vesamita, Yamataki, uh, Akilasa, Barash Waja, Waseta, Kasaba, and Bago. All those squares give five, so I will share a gift. But rather, he give a gift. When I am giving a gift, my mind becomes tranquil, calm, and energy and joy arise. He gives that gift to an aesthetic of a Burmese food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garland, scents and ornaments, bedding, the weddings, and lighting. Having given such a gift with the wake up of the body, after that, he is reborn in the companionship with the heavenly being who controls what is created by the authors. Having a thought that karma, psychic potency, glory, and authority, he comes back and returns to this state of being. He does not give a gift. When I am giving a gift, my mind becomes transcured and energy and joy arise. But rather, he gave a gift. It is an enchantment of the mind, an accessory of the mind. He gives that gift to an ascetic or a Brahmin. Food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents, and ointments, bedding, earrings, and lighting. Heavy giving such a gift with the breakup of the body after death. He is reborn in a companionship with the heavenly being of Brahma's company. Having exhort that karma, psychic potency, glory, and authority, he does not come back and return to the state of being. This Saliputta is the reason why a gift given by someone here is not of a grateful and benefit. And this is the reason why a gift given by someone here is of a grateful and benefit. All right. Thank you oh. so much, Bunya. I think uh, that might be her husband, Shamei. <laughs> All right. Thank you for reading. So here, the Buddha is talking about you know, how do you not receive benefit from a certain gift? And then how do you receive benefit from a certain gift? And here at the very beginning, someone giving gifts with expectations. There, the Buddha describes it also someone with a bound up mind looking for rewards. Here, this person giving a gift, they're not going to get the benefit of eliminating craving, desire, attachment. That's the number one benefit of practicing generosity is eliminating selfishness this craving desire attachment the mind is holding on well if someone's giving a gift with expectations with a bound up mind looking for rewards then they're still craving desire attachment i'm only giving this gift because i want these certain things to happen they're not eliminating craving desire attachment that's why there's no benefit there and then he talks about uh down here some more other situations where somebody is not getting benefit and then he talks about ultimately by the time he gets down here he talks about somebody who is getting benefit he talks about that someone's making this offering in order to enhance the mind and benefit the mind here it is here 
this is where somebody's receiving the benefit because they understand that the whole reason why they're making this offering is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. They're making an offering without any expectation of anything in return. They have no strings attached. There's no cravings, desire, attachments. It's just, I would like to make this offering. Here you go. This is for you. And whatever that person does, you're completely fine with that. The mind's joyful before giving, calm and confident while giving, and joyful after giving. There's no expectations of what should or shouldn't happen with that gift once it's handed to the person. So that would be the way to ensure that you're not having expectations is that you're fully letting this thing go, whether it's food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care, financial support, or what have you, you're just letting go. And that's how the mind gets this enhancement or there's this accessory to the mind. This is how you get benefit of eliminating craving, desire, attachment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. Just for clarification's purposes, even though we as students, we as practitioners might know of these other benefits of giving in this lifetime and in the next, it seems like this is teaching us that the most wise way of giving is to not have those in the mind and just give purely for generosity's sake. Is that the correct way to be looking at this teaching, sir? 100% true. That the Buddha is going to teach the natural laws of existence. He's going to teach the natural law of karma so that as you're making offerings and you start seeing all these benefits that you know and attribute, like, wow, those things are happening because of this generosity. But you're not making the offerings because you're wanting those things to occur. But you need to be able to see the natural law of karma so clearly inside and out, backwards and forwards in order to get to enlightenment because you need to navigate this natural law and make only wise decisions that are producing wholesome results in order to get to enlightenment. You need to purge all your unwise decisions that lead to unwholesome results. And one of the unwise decisions is making a gift with expectations or wanting something to occur. This is going to cause the mind to be bound up as the Buddha describes. And now when you make that offering, you're not getting the actual full benefits of the offering. So even though you know that these other beneficial things are occurring and they will occur, the mind should be devoid of that and not even interested in that. You're only making the offering just for pure generosity of here you go, here's the offering, done with it. And you know that you need to make offerings in order to train the mind to eliminate selfishness and you need to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So that's the whole reason why you're doing it. And then there's going to be all these other benefits. And the Buddha talks about more of those benefits as you go here in this book. Uh, He explains what these different benefits are. And some of those benefits are improved rebirth. And again, that's not what you're interested in. That's not what you're looking for. You're interested in enlightenment. And if you fall short of that for any reason, you know that, okay, if I'm practicing generosity, there can be this improved rebirth. But still, one needs to continue to practice to get to enlightenment. So the goal would be to go ahead and do that work now in this lifetime and be done with it all. That's wonderful. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. It does not appear there. Oh, I see. Um, Thomas asks, 
what other things can be considered generosity without offerings? If I am kind to someone, is that generosity? Uh, you can think of this as generosity, but you still need to give certain things like food, water, clothing, medical care, you know, a shelter, financial support, things like this. If you were only being kind and that's it, then you're not really practicing generosity. I tend to think about generosity in these terms is that it's giving and sharing more than is strictly required in any particular situation. So you're not required to do anything in this world but die. That's the only thing that we're all required to do. So anything above and beyond that in this definition of giving and sharing could be potentially generosity. I think of even smiling as as generosity. And these are like little things that you might need to do just to get started. Then you might move to opening a door for somebody, right? That's sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources more than is strictly required in any one given situation. But ultimately, where you're going to get the most benefit is where you're giving and sharing certain objects because this is what the mind tends to hold on to. So if you feel that your mind is attached to your clothing, for example, so you got this big wardrobe of clothing and you really take great pride in cultivating this wardrobe, well, it would be wise for you to start giving away some of those articles of clothing in order to train the mind to let go. Or if you notice that you're really attached to money, then providing some donations would be really helpful for you. Or if you notice that you're really attached to your time, say you're a business person and you really value your time a lot, well, you need to perhaps consider donating your time and practicing generosity through donating your time in certain ways. These are all ways that you can do that. Some things that I do is I give blood about every three months. This is something that I do, and this not only helps to practice generosity, but it also helps to practice non-self too, because while you're getting the blood coming out of the arm and you're maybe looking at it, you can understand like, yeah, this is not mine. It doesn't belong to me. This body is not mine. So that can be really helpful for the mind. Uh, There's many different things that you can be doing to practice generosity. Kindness can be considered one of those, but you would like to go way far above and beyond just kindness. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are all the questions that we have at this time. All right. So, chapter 56. Is this for me or for you? Um, this would be for you, sir, but this is the uh, longer chapter. Okay. If you'd want to see that. Let's see how many pages is it. Yeah, I can read the whole thing if you like. Okay. Thank you, sir. Okay, so the title here for chapter 56 is Recipient and the Fruit of Such Gift. Here, Ananda, by giving a gift to an animal, the offering may be predicted to repay a hundredfold. By giving a gift to an unwholesome ordinary person, the offering may be predicted to repay a thousandfold. By giving a gift to a virtuous, practicing moral conduct, ordinary person, the offering may be predicted to repay a hundred thousandfold. By giving a gift to one outside the community who is free from craving for central pleasures, 
the offering may be predicted to repay a hundred thousand times a hundred thousand fold. By giving a gift to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of stream entry, the offering may be predicted to repay incalculably, immeasurably. What then should be said about giving a gift to a stream enter? What should be said about giving a gift to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of once returning? To a once returner, to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of non-returning, to a non-returner, to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of arahantship, to an arahant, to a Pakya Buddha, one what should be said about giving a gift to a Tathagata, accomplished and fully perfectly enlightened? There are seven kinds of offerings made to the community, Ananda. One gives a gift to a community of both male and female ordained practitioners, headed by the Buddha. This is the first kind of offering made to the community. One gives a gift to the community of both male and female ordained practitioners, after the Tathagata has attained final Nibbana or final enlightenment. This is the second kind of offering made to the community. One gives a gift to the community of male ordained practitioners. This is the third kind of offering made to the community. One gives a gift to the community of female ordained practitioners. This is the fourth kind of offering made to the community. One gives a gift saying, Appoint so many male and female ordained practitioners for me from the community. This is the fifth kind of offering made to the community. One gives a gift saying, Appoint so many male ordained practitioners for me from the community. This is the sixth kind of offering made to the community. One gives a gift saying, Appoint so many female ordained practitioners for me from the community. This is the seventh kind of offering made to the community. In future times, Ananda, there will be members of the clan who are yellow necks, immoral, of unwholesome character. People will give gifts to those unwholesome persons for the sake of the community. Even then, I say, an offering made to the community is incalculable, immeasurable. And I say that in no way is a gift to a person individually ever more fruitful than an offering made to the community. There are, Ananda, four kinds of purification of offering. What for? There is the offering that is purified by the donor, not by the recipient. There is the offering that is purified by the recipient, not by the donor. There is the offering that is purified neither by the donor nor by the recipient. There is the offering that is purified by both the donor and by the recipient. And now the Buddha goes in and explains the same things that we saw in that previous chapter, explaining what each of these four types of purification are. And then he says, these are the four kinds of purifications of offering. That is what the perfectly enlightened one said when the fortunate one had said that. The teacher said further. When a virtuous person to an unwholesome person gives, with trusting heart, a gift righteously obtained, 
placing confidence that the fruit of action is great, the donor's virtue purifies the offering. When an unwholesome person to a virtuous person gives with untrusting heart the gift unrighteously obtained, a gift unrighteously obtained, nor places confidence with the fruit of action is great. The recipient's virtue purifies the offering. When an unwholesome person to an unwholesome person gives with untrusting heart a gift unrighteously obtained, nor places confidence that the fruit of action is great, neither's virtue purifies the offering. When a virtuous person to a virtuous person gives with trusting heart a gift righteously obtained, placing confidence that the fruit of action is great, that gift, I say, will come to full fruitation. When a passionless person to a passionless person gives with trusting heart a gift righteously obtained, placing confidence that the fruit of action is great, that gift, I say, is the best of worldly gifts. All right, so here the Buddha is first going through in his discourse and explaining the increasing benefits of an offering made to different types of beings. He starts with an animal and says, yes, you know, this is actually beneficial because the mind is still practicing generosity. So if you see stray animals or you have a friend that has an animal and you make some offering, yes, this is actually helpful to make an offering to these beings that are animals. And then even for the unwholesome ordinary person, there's some benefit there because with these individuals, you're still practicing generosity. You're still practicing the elimination of craving, desire, attachment. It's just that those beings aren't in a position to do anything significantly beneficial in developing and cultivating the mind, thus share teachings with others. So therefore an animal, any offering that's made to that being, it's not producing merit because an animal can't actually get to enlightenment, but it is still beneficial. And the same thing with an unwholesome ordinary person. That person is doing unwholesome things, but even making an offering to that person. Say there was somebody who is addicted to drugs and alcohol. This person is doing unwise things and someone might consider that to be unwholesome, but there's still some benefit there. You're helping that person to sustain their life but that person isn't in a condition and isn't in a situation that is going to be able to share these teachings with others to actually benefit the world. So that's why it doesn't have the same impact or the same benefit as these increasing levels of individuals who are getting closer and closer to enlightenment. As you're making offerings to those individuals, it's becoming more beneficial. You're still eliminating craving, desire, attachment. You are still, as you go further and further, getting closer and closer to actually a Buddha, then you're still benefiting the world by supporting individuals who are on the path to enlightenment, who are either in the first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment or an actual Buddha. You're still benefiting the world by supporting these people and helping them to get closer and closer to enlightenment and then share the teachings that it takes to get to enlightenment. And as you're moving up getting closer and closer to either an arahant or an actual Buddha, you're coming in contact with someone who has deep, deep wisdom about the teachings that lead to enlightenment. And that's where the real benefit comes in. 
And then the Buddha even talks about making offerings to the community versus to an individual. So when you're making an offering to an actual teacher, you're making offerings of perhaps food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care. This is to an individual. But there's also offerings that you can make like a dwelling where multiple people can sleep or can teach in this dwelling or say that you're making an offering of like a microphone and now this microphone is being offered to perhaps a teacher but it's for the benefit of the entire community because now the teachers can teach and then those teachings can be shared through this sound system to be able to then reach a wider and wider audience so by making an offering to the community such as that you're impacting and benefiting a wider and wider and wider audience. So that's what the Buddha is explaining here. By the time we get down here, this is the same teaching that we explored earlier, where he's talking about the purification of the various individuals, how they're purifying the offering. And he's sharing that in summary form in each one of these little paragraphs. And I'll just cover this one where he says, when a virtuous person to a virtuous person gives, with a trusting heart. Because when you make an offering to a teacher or to an ordained practitioner, you need to trust that your offering is going to a good place, that you need to trust that it's being beneficial for either that individual and or the community, rather than be suspicious and, you know, what are they doing with that money? I'm not quite sure. Should I give the money or not? You need to instead have this trusting heart is what the Buddha is explaining is trust that your offering is going to a wholesome place and a gift righteously obtained that you obtain this gift, whatever it is that you're offering in a righteous way. So in other words, you didn't go out and steal something and then offer it, or you didn't go out and gamble and then you made money. So now you make an offering, right? This would be unrighteously obtained. You would like to obtain your gift righteously through your own work and effort, putting your own energy and effort into it. That's what's ultimately producing the benefit for you. And then placing confidence that the fruit of action is great. What the Buddha is talking about here is the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, that the benefit of cause and effect or that this natural law of existence, having confidence that, yes, you can see the truth of this natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result. You have pure confidence that you can see this with your own eyes and you know that there's absolutely this great benefit of performing the action of giving and practicing generosity. And you can see your mind gradually becoming less and less selfish. This is what he's talking about here. He says, that gift, I say, will come to full fruitation because both the donor and the receiver, recipient are both virtuous. The offering has been made with a trusting heart. The gift has been obtained righteously. And there's this confidence that, yes, you can see the action of giving is actually creating this result of less and less craving in the mind. Therefore, you should see more and more peacefulness and joyfulness coming into the mind, less and less discontentedness. But then he shares here, when a passionless person 
gives to another passionless person. What he's talking about here is somebody who's without craving, desire, attachment. When he talks about passion, we usually think about passion in a positive way. Like when we talk about romantic love, like there's so much passion to be in love with this person or to have intimate contact with this person. That's just craving, desire, attachment. That's all that is. And we oftentimes associate passion and love together. This is actually the misunderstanding of the unenlightened mind. This is the unknowing of true reality. This is how craving, desire, attachment masquerades as love, where people think that this passion that they feel is the actual love. And then when that passion is gone, they feel like the love is gone. But what actually has occurred is they had craving, desire, attachment for a period of time. But that craving, desire, attachment isn't permanent. It's going to burn out like a fire. It's going to extinguish. And now when that craving, desire, attachment is gone, if you associate that passion you felt as being the love, and you might say that passion is gone, I no longer love this person, therefore I need to go find another partner. And this is where people move from partner to partner to partner to partner, never actually being in a solid, stable relationship that is long term with longevity because they're misunderstanding what true love is. They're associating the craving, desire, attachment or that passion with being the love when in reality it's just craving, desire, attachment. It's not actually true love, love without attachment. So here what the Buddha is saying is when a person without craving gives to another person without craving. Essentially, these people are enlightened, right? These two people are enlightened and they're still practicing generosity with each other. They're doing that with a trusting heart, with a gift that has been righteously obtained, and they're placing confidence in this natural law of gamma of cause and effect. The Buddha is saying, this is the best gift of all right? Because there's been this gift from one enlightened being to another enlightened being. Because when there's lots and lots and lots of enlightened beings in the world, this is really amazing for the entire world. Because now the teachings can permeate in the world and be shared, you know, far and wide. And the very best gift is when two individuals who are enlightened can come together and they can share generosity and practice generosity with each other. The Buddha is saying this is the absolute best of all worldly gifts. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. All right, so let's go to the next chapter, which is chapter 57. Yes, sir. Persons who are worthy of gifts, uh, first discourse. Monks, this assembly is free from unbeneficial speech. This assembly is free from idle chatter. It consists purely of heartwood. Such is this community of monks. Such is this assembly. Such an assembly as is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectful salutation, an incomparable field of merit for the world. Such is this community of monks, such is this assembly. Such an assembly that is such an assembly that a small gift given to it becomes great and a great gift greater. Such is this community of monks, such is this assembly. Such an assembly as is rare for the world to see. Such is this community of monks, such is this assembly. 
such an assembly as would be worth journeying many leagues with a travel bag to see, such as this community of monks, such as this assembly. In this community of monks, there are monks who are arahats with taints destroyed, who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached their own goal, destroyed the fetters of existence, and are completely liberated through final knowledge and wisdom. Such monks are there in this community of monks. In this community of monks, there are monks who, with the destruction of the five lower fetters, are due to reappear spontaneously in the heavenly realm, and there attain final nibbana, final enlightenment, without ever returning from that world. Such monks are there in this community of monks. In this community of monks, there are monks who, with the destruction of three fetters and with the fading of craving, anger, and ignorance, are once returners, returning once to this world to make an end of discontentedness. Such monks are there in this community of monks. In this community of monks, there are monks who, with the destruction of the three fetters, are stream enterers, no longer subject to hell, bound for liberation, headed for enlightenment. Such monks are there in this community of monks. In this community of monks, there are monks who reside devoted to the development of the four foundations of mindfulness, body, feelings, mind, and mental objects. Such monks are there in this community of monks. In this community of monks, there are monks who reside devoted to the development of the four right kinds of striving, right effort, of the four bases for spiritual power, also known as mental power, initiative, energy, mind, investigation, of the five sense bases, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, of the five powers, confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, of the seven factors of enlightenment, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, of the Noble Eightfold Path, such monks are there in this community of monks. In this community of monks, there are monks who reside devoted to the development of loving kindness, of compassion, of sympathetic joy, of equanimity, of the meditation on unattractiveness of the body, of the perception of impermanence, such monks are there in this community of monks. In this community of monks, there are monks who reside devoted to the development of mindfulness of breathing or breathing mindfulness meditation. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So the Buddha is saying a lot here. He's essentially laying out individuals that are worthy of gifts. And this is the first discourse. There's other discourses where he shares more detail, but these are just some of the details. It's not the only detail of persons who are worthy for gifts, but it's just the first discourse. There's other teachings around this topic as well. So here he's giving a list of things to look for in terms of who you choose to make offerings to. And he talks about this as heartwood. Heartwood is like the core of the tree. As you get into the core of the tree, this is the higher quality wood that they make really high quality items with. And as you get to the outer edges of the tree, this is lower and lower quality of wood. So you're looking for this pure hardwood, this high quality wood. And people would be familiar with this during his lifetime. 
where the outer edges of the wood are of lower quality. So he's saying that this community consists of purely heartwood, of essentially people who are practicing these teachings with a really good high quality of, of wisdom and uh, practice. And he goes through all the various aspects of things to look for in individuals who are practicing well. And remember, you're not judging, you're not looking down, you're not trying to determine who is wholesome and unwholesome. You're trying to make a wise decision about who do I make this offering to? Even if you come across somebody who is into unwholesome or unwise things, you're not looking down on them like an unwholesome person uh, or uh, in any kind of negative way. You're just making the decision and understanding where would it be wise for me to use these precious resources that I'm about to offer? Where is the best place for me to offer those? And I imagine that at different times in your life, you'll make offerings to all different types of people, whether it's an animal or like I mentioned, somebody who perhaps is addicted to drugs or alcohol, you will probably make offerings or have made offerings to people like that before. And then as you go through life, you'll make offerings in different areas of the world. And uh, here the Buddha is giving you some guidance on that to help you understand that. Let's see what else we can talk about here see there's so much in here that he was talking about maybe i'll just turn things over to you guys and see what questions you guys have there are some different things that i was observing going through here but you guys might have questions about this so what questions do you guys have on this chapter um there are no questions on this chapter right now but thomas did have a question for the previous chapter Okay, let's, when you were, let's go ahead and look uh, at that one then. Yes, sir. When you were talking about um, love without attachments, mm -hmm. we were teaching about that. He asks, uh, what, is a yeah, what is fundamental in Buddhist teachings for long life relationships, sir? Okay, so there's a lot of teachings around that. And Thomas, since I know you, we've talked just recently, and you're just kind of starting out in the last month of learning these teachings. What I would suggest, rather than me going through this here, is to have you first read Volume 1, Chapter 15. That's where you'll learn about true love, love without attachment. And that's a place to start in learning how to love without attachment. Because as long as there's attachment in a relationship, it's going to have discontentedness and it's going to struggle. And then once you read that and you're starting to understand that, maybe you ask questions in the Facebook group, maybe you reach out to me privately, maybe you schedule another one of those personal guidance sessions or something like that and you understand that chapter, then I'll share some other things with you, which I've actually already shared with you a little bit recently when we were talking about practicing generosity. And he talks about this, the Buddha talks about practicing generosity in relationships, uh, particularly amongst uh, life partners. He talks about having kind words and being polite and respectful to each other and having, you know, warming words essentially is what he's talking about. So I can share some of these other details with you, but they all plug into your overall practice of love without attachment, true love. So that's why I would suggest that you start with chapter 15 and volume one first. And then once you understand that and you've gotten any 
clarifying questions answered there and you're starting to learn how to put that into practice then there's other aspects of his teachings that will really help to plug in to that overall practice of true love yes thank you sir mm -hmm. uh, it does not appear that there are any other questions at this time okay so let's move on to the next chapter which is 58 should i read this one um, yes, please, sir. Okay. So the title here is Persons Who Are Worthy of Gifts, Second Discourse. So here the Buddha is going to go into another aspect of people who you would be interested to make offerings to. Monks, these eight persons are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, and an unsurpassed field of merit for the world. What eight? the stream enterer, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of stream entry, the once returner, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of once returning, the non-returner, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of non-returning, the arahant, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of arahantship. These eight persons, monks, are worthy of gifts worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, an unsurpassed field of merit for the world, the four practicing the way, and the four established in the fruit. This is the upright community, composed in wisdom and virtuous behavior or moral conduct. For people intent on sacrifice, for living beings seeking merit, making merit that ripens in the acquisitions, what is given to the community bears great fruit. So here, the eight persons that he's talking about are the four stages of enlightenment. Anybody who's in one of those four stages, which stream entry is the first stage, once returner is the second stage, non-returner is the third stage, and otter hunt is the fourth stage where the mind is actually enlightened. And if you understand enough about the fetters, which I've taught recently, then you might ultimately get to the point where you can observe whether somebody has eliminated any of these particular fetters because an individual is not going to tell you that they're actually in one of these stages of enlightenment. There might be people who do tell you that, but you shouldn't regard that as being the truth whatsoever. That if somebody is professing their stage of enlightenment, this is a good indication that they haven't attained that stage of enlightenment. So you would like to cultivate so much wisdom that you're able to discern this for yourself of whether someone is a stream enter or once returner, non-returner, or arahant. So that's someone who's in one of the four stages of enlightenment. And then the other four are people who are in the process of attaining one of those four stages of enlightenment. That's the eight individuals that the Buddha says is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutations, an unsurpassed field of merit for the world. This merit is generosity that you practice towards individuals who are in one of these four stages of enlightenment or in the process of attaining one of these four stages of enlightenment. That is very beneficial for you and your practice because you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment, which is all generosity is doing that, not just merit. But also, you're coming into contact with individuals who are in one of these four stages of enlightenment or practicing to 
experience one of these four stages of enlightenment. So that means you're getting the benefit of coming in contact with them in learning teachings. But then the third thing, which is actually the merit and which is actually now classified as merit, is that you're making this offering to these individuals who are actually sharing the teachings and helping them come into the world. So this is why it's unsurpassed field of merit for the world because you're supporting the people who are in one of these four stages of enlightenment or that they're practicing for the realization of one of those four stages. They're your offering is now going to the benefit of that individual to be able to then practice deeper and deeper and deeper getting into their practice and then ultimately potentially actually sharing the teachings if they decide to be a teacher this would be wildly helpful for many many beings in the world to have lots of enlightened beings who are sharing the teachings in the world or even someone who's a non-returner or a once returner or a stream enter if they're learning from someone who is enlightened and then they're actually teaching, now they can actually be beneficial because they can share what they know and they're practicing such a moral conduct that they're not going outside of what they know. They're not lying, right? They're not sharing false teachings, but where they get to a point with their students that they don't understand what is next, then if they're learning from a teacher who is enlightened, but there may be a stream enter, a once returner, a non-returner, now they have a person to go back to and ask for help. It's much more of a challenge for a stream enter, a once returner, a non-returner to share these teachings as a teacher. An otter hunt would find it to be very easy to share these teachings if they have the quality of being able to be a teacher. It would be effortless for them to share these teachings. But for a stream enter, once returner, or non-returner, there's going to be a certain amount of difficulty. But if they've got a, a teacher who is enlightened, they have an individual to go back to for support and for guidance to then help them along becoming a better and better teacher and getting closer and closer to enlightenment in the process. So supporting this whole process of more and more enlightened beings coming into the world is an unsurpassed field of merit for the world is what the Buddha is explaining. And then he goes into some more detail down here in the bottom, which I've explained in other classes and even in the books and stuff like that. But I'll open up to any questions that you guys might have related to anything that I just shared or anything that you've read in this particular chapter. It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so we'll go to chapter 59. Yes, sir. Persons who are worthy of gifts, their discourse. Monks. These seven persons are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectful salutation, and unsurpassed field of merit for the world. What seven? The one liberated in both respects, the one liberated by wisdom, the body witness, the one accomplished in view, the one liberated by confidence, the teachings stream enterer, and the confidence stream enterer. These seven persons are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectful salutation, an unsurpassed field of merit for the world. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So I'm going to explain a couple of these, and then I'll show you where to find the details on the others, because there's a lot of detail to understand what each one of these seven are. This first one where the Buddha is saying the one liberated in both respects this is an actual uh, Buddha, an, a Tathagata. Uh, and there's 
other discourses that he shares that explains what this is. And then one liberated by wisdom, this is an enlightened being, someone who's either learned from a Buddha or someone who's learned from another enlightened being, they're liberated from uh, by wisdom, where a Buddha, of course, has a high degree of wisdom, but their liberation occurs based on their own independent journey, not by the wisdom of somebody else. So these are a Tathagata or a Buddha and a enlightened being. And he's saying these are people who are worthy of gifts. And then these other ones here, I've actually explained down here in the explanation. I've explained what each one of them are. And I've even shared with you the chapter in the book series to actually go and understand. So even this one that I just explained about a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, I share with you to go to volume two, chapter 13, and there you'll see exactly what the Buddha is talking about, about the one liberated in both respects. And then the same chapter explains the one liberated by wisdom, the the otter hunt. But then these others, there's other places in the book series where you can go and you can see what he's actually talking about related to each one of these because it would be too much detail for me to explain in class it was actually too much detail for me to explain here in the book and the buddha explains it very clearly in his actual discourses so that's why i'm just pointing you to go look to the discourses to actually see uh, what each of these are if you're interested in learning what those are questions on this chapter It does not appear that there are any questions at this time. The only question that I had was about the body witness, but in your teachings below, you said that you hadn't seen what this actually is either. Yeah, this one, I'm not clear on what this is. I haven't seen it anywhere in the discourses. And this is the nature of an individual, one individual having read the entire Pali Canon is very rare because it's so comprehensive that there's very few individuals who've actually digested all of the Pali Canon. But even in digesting all of the Pali Canon, this is a nature of impermanence too. I don't think that this is actually in the Pali Canon because I haven't seen it anywhere. And I've read a, a good amount of the Pali Canon. So because of impermanence from 2,500 years ago until today, we know that we don't have every single thing that the Buddha taught. We have a huge collection of what he taught, 45 large volumes of books. But anybody who understands the universal truth of impermanence, we know that we don't have everything. But the good news is, is that this right here is really minimal in terms of what you need in order to get to enlightenment. If you don't know this, you can still get to enlightenment because what this is all around is where should you practice your generosity and how should you practice your generosity and all the other discourses and what we do know are quite extensive and quite detailed on how to practice generosity and who to practice your generosity towards. So whatever the Buddha was talking about here, um, I don't know what that is currently. If I should ever find out in the future, because I'm always reading different parts of the Pali Canon, if I happen to run across this, I'll update this. But uh, at this point, I don't know what that refers to. Okay. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. And that's the only yes. questions, right? Yes, sir. Okay, so the last chapter, chapter 60, titled Persons Who Are Worthy of Gifts, Fourth Discourse. Monks, possessing five qualities, 
A monk is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectful salutations, an unsurpassed field of merit for the world. What five? Here, a monk is accomplished in virtuous behavior, moral conduct, accomplished in concentration, accomplished in wisdom, accomplished in liberation, and accomplished in wisdom and vision of liberation. Possessing these five qualities, a monk is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectful salutations, an unsurpassed field of merit for the world. So once again, the Buddha explains what all of these things are in other discourses. Here he's just pointing to those discourses. He's not going to repeat all of that stuff here in this one particular discourse. He talks about accomplishment in virtuous behavior or moral conduct. This is essentially the moral conduct section of the Eightfold Path where there's right speech, right action, and right livelihood. But then there's additional teachings beyond that where someone is not just practicing moral conduct, but they're accomplished. They're above and beyond just some of those basic teachings that are offered there in the Eightfold Path. Because in the Eightfold Path, for example, around right speech, he only shares four aspects of right speech. He talks about one who is not having harsh speech, one who's not lying, one who is not practicing slander, and one who's not having frivolous speech. These are the only four aspects of right speech that he shares in the Eightfold Path. But when you go above and beyond that, you discover the five factors of well-spoken speech. And there's even other teachings beyond that related to speech. So one to be accomplished in virtuous behavior, yes, they would need to be practicing the Eightfold Path as a baseline, but then there would need to be other moral conduct beyond that, that to be accomplished. And that's through going through all the various teachings of the Buddha to be able to see that. And then he also explains what accomplishment and concentration is. He describes this in detail. He talks about the clarity of somebody's mind and how focused and clear it is. He also talks about accomplishment and wisdom, having the, the wisdom of these teachings. And then he talks about liberation, which is the, act, the mind is actually enlightened. Uh, so being accomplished in wisdom and accomplished in liberation, this means the person is actually enlightened, where they have attained final knowledge or accomplishment and wisdom. They understand all the teachings in their totality of what it actually takes to get to enlightenment. And being accomplished in liberation themselves means that they no longer experience any discontentedness whatsoever, that the mind is actually liberated, is actually enlightened. And then accomplishment and wisdom and vision of liberation. This is someone who's actually able to share the teachings of what it takes to actually get to enlightenment. So having the wisdom to get to your own enlightenment and actually accomplishing being liberated and enlightened, that's one aspect, or actually it's two. You know, it's accomplishment and wisdom and accomplishment and liberation. But then having done that yourself, having accomplishment and wisdom and vision of liberation, how to guide others to liberation of mind. This is a whole nother level of understanding, a whole level of advanced practice beyond just cultivating wisdom for yourself and getting to liberation yourself, but having the ability to now guide others to understand that wisdom and have 
the clarity of the path to liberation to be able to share that. That's a whole other level of practice that the Buddha is explaining here. So he's saying these five individuals, or at least these five qualities, this individual having these five qualities is worthy of gifts. This would be someone who is surely enlightened and actually uh, sharing the teachings as a teacher. He's saying this person is worthy of gifts, hospitality, offerings, respectful salutation, this unsurpassed field of merit for the world. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? There are no questions at this time, sir. Okay. Hey, there's a firework right at the right time that we ended class. I don't know if you guys heard that. That was good timing. <laughs> um, so we are moving along in this book. We're next week going to be going into chapter 61 through chapter 70. So if you'd like to study ahead of time in order to come to class with any particular questions, you're welcome to do that because by reading ahead of time, you're going to potentially have more questions and seek more clarifications, particularly if you read the things that I've shared in, in, in more detail, there might be certain things that you'd like to ask questions about. So you might consider doing that before coming to class. So we're going to be covering chapters 61 through 70 next Saturday. Then tomorrow, our group learning program, this is New Year's Day, today's New Year's Eve, tomorrow's New Year's Day, we're going to actually just be doing meditation together. I'm going to be doing a breathing mindfulness meditation with loving kindness meditation. This is a great way to start your new year with actually doing meditation with the community. So rather than share any particular teachings, I'm going to just do meditation and then open up to any questions you guys have about the path to enlightenment, anything that you're challenged with, anything that you're reading, anything that you're looking to understand, I'll be available to help you with that. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing a breathing mindfulness meditation together. And then next week on Sunday, we're going to be restarting the group learning program on January 8th from the very beginning. We're going to be starting here in Chiang Mai and we're going to be starting online as well. Two programs, one in person and one online. So if you miss one, there's always the other. And if you missed any of these, then there's always the recordings as well. So feel free to attend any of those classes as we go forward. Just a little bit different schedule than what we have been doing. Of course, impermanence is always there. So our schedule is going to adjust from time to time. But starting at the beginning of the year, we're going to be starting the group learning program and then ultimately restarting the Polycan and an English study group. So I'll see you guys potentially in a future class. Have a very wonderful and safe holiday this New Year's Eve and tomorrow New Year's Day. Perhaps you're choosing to spend time with family or friends and take a break or relax, or perhaps you're an individual that needs to go to work and service other people. Whatever it is that you choose to do, have a very wonderful and lovely, peaceful and joyful holiday. We'll see you in a future class. Sawadiha. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. 
Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.